If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and this is Green Dreamer. As a community-powered show, we do need your listener support to be able to keep this interdependent podcast alive and continue to explore so many topics and perspectives often sidelined by mainstream media. So if you're moved by our conversations and want to see the show kept alive, you can reciprocate support starting from a gift of just $2 at greendreamer.com support. For now, on to today's episode, where we're speaking with Dr. Emma Dowling. You know, I'm in favor of people being compassionate. I think that's a good thing. But I think it, we have to also not fall into the trap of, it's, you know, the, the kind of change that we need is more than people simply changing their behavior. We have to actually change something structurally about the way that our economy and society are organized. Based at the University of Vienna in Austria, Emma is a sociologist and political scientist with research interests in social change, social justice, financialization, political economy, social reproduction, affective labor, welfare state transformation, and the crisis of care. We begin here as Emma shares about what first sparked her curiosities to explore and better understand the crisis of care. So I first became interested in the issue of care in the context of the UK, where I was based at the time. And this was sort of after 2008 and the financial crisis, where in Britain, Britain was subjected to some quite severe austerity measures. So cuts to public services and to funding for public services, particularly at the level of the municipality. And here there were cuts up to like 60% so that municipalities were and local councils weren't able to provide particularly also adult social care services, which they're responsible for. And so I um, was interested in the ways that austerity was having an effect in Britain in terms of people's access to the care that they needed, but also the increasingly difficult conditions under which people who were working in the care sector were trying to provide 
care and, and do their jobs. And the other aspect of this was also to explore the ways in which cuts were also increasing the amount of unpaid work that people were doing in the home, and particularly here, women were doing in the home in the context of the family and the household, and also volunteers as well in, in their community. So it was really sort of looking at the ways in which austerity and cuts was impacting on all these areas of, of care. That was the kind of context. So and I, what I wanted to do was to make the crisis, the growing crisis here, visible. That was one thing. The other thing was that I, I was also interested in, in looking at the ways in which care really isn't just one individual sector. It cuts across different areas of society. And so I was also interested in making the connections there between these different areas. And coming out of the, the a feminist movement and feminist activism, of course, making visible areas of society that are really crucial for life to be sustained, all the caring that gets done that's part of that, and showing this and, and making this visible was sort of part of, of what I was interested in doing. When you said that care isn't really just a sector, I feel the same about the idea of sustainability in that it's not a field or it's not a sector because it's really embedded within all aspects of society. And it feels like a similar thing with care as well. And there are so many crises we're faced with today. People talk about a mental health crisis, a socio-ecological crisis, the climate crisis, financial crisis, and so on. Although perhaps they're all part of this broader meta-crisis. But as you note, to speak of crisis, any kind of crisis, is to join a litany of crisis lamentations that crowd the public sphere and make us numb to its urgency. Like a kind of inverted fairy dust, this despair has us all in a painful hiatus, not knowing how to impel change and unable to imagine a different future, let alone bring it about, end quote. With this in mind, what is the significance of naming this care crisis nevertheless, and how do you see it relating to the multitude of other crises that people recognize? Mm, that's a really good question because I think that was something that I that I struggled with, particularly with, with starting out writing the book and the the passage that you quote is is from the introduction where I was really trying to find a way into these issues where on the one hand, obviously drawing attention to a, a crisis and the way that I define the crisis in the book is, is as a kind of exhaustion of societal care resources and both in terms of people's access to care or people not being able to get the care that they need, but also people who are doing care, doing so under increasingly difficult conditions all the while of course, inequality growing uh, there as well and, and, and being a significant factor. And then calling it a crisis is, of course, not only reflecting reality and the real, the real situation. I mean, certainly also while I was researching the book, and I, I begin the book also by saying this, is sort of, you know, open the papers and, and any day you'll, you'll have reports of the situation in the, in the health sector, in the social care sector, that this sense of, of, of crisis is, is there, it's real. And of course, to call something a crisis is to draw attention to an urgency and a need for change, but also a question of what direction that change might might go in. But at the same time, also, of course, to um, talk about a, a crisis 
at the moment when when there's so much talk about crisis, yeah, it also feels difficult. There's a kind of ambivalence there as well because we've said, oh gosh, you know, all this talk about crisis, and and it can feel quite disempowering as well and and so I was kind of grappling with with that particularly in the context of a sort of a crisis seems to have become such a normal a normal state of affairs but also one that that feels quite disempowering because it's not it's not you know you don't have a sense of okay we're we're going somewhere positive we have a, a sort of sense of of where we're going it's more a sense of oh we don't really know what's happening and and things have gotten to a point where they can't continue the way that they are and and as you say at the moment there seems to be crises in in different areas but for me that's also an opening to think about how these crises are connected to one another you mentioned sustainability I do think that um thinking also about ecological issues together with care is is really important, but also thinking about the ways in which the economic model that we have, the sort of capitalist model, you know, it's come up against limits. It tries to commodify care, tries to sort of instrumentalize this whole area of care and, and, and it's not working. You know, the system is kind of eating its eating its own tail and creating worse conditions and, and greater inequality. The same with you know ecology, the sort of end the, the idea of endless growth on a finite planet is is a contradiction, right? So I think there's also ways in which these different crises come together around the question of the economy and the kind of economy we have and the way that capitalism functions and the limits that that we have there. Absolutely. Yeah. When we dig deep enough underneath all of these different crises or different at the surface, I think that we often find that they share a lot of the same roots. And when we think about the state of our world today, it's easy to jump to the conclusion that the crisis of care is about people's lack of compassion and lack of care for each other. And that type of interpretation might lead people to believe that we just have to suck it up and be kinder be more compassionate and loving towards everyone around us. But your book challenges the idea that people ever stopped caring and that the deep and multifaceted crises of our time cannot be solved by simply reinstilling the virtues of empathy, end quote. I'd be curious to hear you expand on this idea that compassion is so often mobilized as maybe the fix to this crisis of care. Hmm. Yeah, it's a kind. Of, it's again a, a, a tricky one, and it's really great to to see and to hear you sort of putting your your finger on these on these issues. Because one of the things that motivated me also in in writing the book was precisely this sort of increasing call for people to be more empathetic to one another. That we need more compassion. That we that we live in a world that is um, dominated by people being selfish you know the sort of individualism the uh, the atomization of society and uh, that these are all these are all problems which to a certain extent that's also true but at the same time that doesn't mean that simply calling for more compassion will solve the problem and there are a couple of issues there the first is that yes that that people haven't uh, stopped caring and, and didn't stop caring. So I think the first thing is that we have to kind of challenge this idea that we simply have a situation of, of 
selfishness and, and people not, not looking out for each other. What we have is a situation that lots of people are caring and are doing the work of caring, but they are doing so under increasingly difficult conditions. And also that a lot of the time it is precisely their sense of compassion of empathy, of, of responsibility, or with, either within a kind of family context of responsibility for loved ones and relatives, or a sense of responsibility for the community, or a sense of responsibility in terms of public service, with you know, people who are working in the health sector or in social work and other areas. And that it's this compassion and sense of responsibility that is also drawn on to paper over the cracks to keep things going under difficult conditions precisely because people can't not care but often it's the usual suspects often and a lot of the time it's women and that this goes on despite the situation that we have and so I think the first thing to acknowledge is that there are lots of people who who are caring, but often their work goes unnoticed. It doesn't have very much value, and precisely also that it relies on this sense of of compassion. So simply calling for for more compassion is is not really sufficient. The other thing is that there is precisely this kind of ideological moment there. So, for example, in the context of Britain after two thousand and eight, where we had so many cuts. There was also a call um, by the Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron, for a big society and for people to sort of get involved in their local communities. And this was kind of presented as as empowering, you know, as um, people getting involved in their communities. But at the same time, also these cuts were happening, so there were less resources available, tax reforms, you know, lowering of corporation tax, that sort of thing was happening. So there was this kind of redistribution distribution of wealth upwards, while at the same time sort of calling on people to to get involved and be, you know, and create a more compassionate society. So I wanted to draw attention to, to that problem. And all of this is also based on something that the feminist movement has pointed out for a long time, that, you know, what the sort of labors of love, there's a kind of mystification of of the things that people you know women have done in the in the home and in the family because of a, a sense of of love actually uh, behind that lies a whole lot of labor and often also economic dependency and these these sorts of things historically so it was really about sort of kind of breaking open um this and also pointing to the fact that the issues that we face have to do with structural conditions for caring has to do with the way that the economy is organized has to do with an unequal distribution of work and also of resources it's not simply an issue of of individual behavior and so I think that was another aspect that I wanted to to draw attention to um, that whereas obviously I, I you know I'm in favor of people being compassionate I think that's a good thing but I think it, we have to also not fall into the trap of it's you know that the kind of change that we need is more than people simply changing their behavior we have to actually change something structurally about the way that our economy and society are organized. I certainly do not doubt that people ever stopped caring. And at the same time, we're also contextual creatures. And the circumstances we're in at any given moment also bring out different parts of the complex humans that we are. So, for example, maybe a sense of lack or insecurity or scarcity 
might lead people to behave more selfishly or define community and family more narrowly as well. Mm, I think it's a really good point as well. And that's something that I pick up in the book around this issue of self-care that, you know, on the one hand, self-care can be a really good thing. But on the other hand, we can also criticize self-care in the ways that it becomes kind of embedded in a sort of well-being industry, which is orientated towards consumption, which is also orientated towards people who have the financial resources to buy lots of products that will help them to, to self-care. Um, but, but I think another aspect there, of, and this idea of sort of, you know, investing in yourself as human capital that you can optimize and 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 grow and reap the benefits of in that kind of financial logic but of course the backdrop to that is also a kind of take care of yourself because no one else will in in the sense that I think in a world where for, for many people life is becoming increasingly precarious where we are very dependent on your ability to work in order to have an income it becomes a very, you know, very anxiety producing situation, the fear of well, what will happen to me if I'm not able to work? What will happen to me if I don't have that income? And and so I think there also is this issue of, of how anxiety and, and fear are also kind of motivating a lot of, of, of people's uh, ways in which they try to compensate for this, the situations that they find themselves in. So you're right, we are, you know, we are complex mm-hmm. human beings and, and it's not a kind of either you're a wonderful, great, caring person or you're, or you're not, but it's also about understanding the ways in which the, also society is organized to, to induce certain kinds of feelings. And I think a lot of the time also, you know, our economy is organized in a way to induce a sense of anxiety and, and, and worry as well. And then to take a step back and highlight the limitations of people simply becoming more loving and compassionate in order to address the care crisis, I think it's helpful to offer a little bit of a historical context to show how deep-rooted and large-scale the crisis is. And you share that the last 30 years has seen the proliferation of the global care chains. And this isn't something we've talked about before on the show. So can you help us understand this phenomenon and how it ties into the broader extractive economy that the system of care exists within? So this is a term that was popularized by a sociologist in the United States, Ali Hochschild, and it was sort of taken on by by others. And the, the debate here is really about how the sort of questions of of what we might call a kind of care regime. So a sort of broader question of how care and care work are distributed in society and sort of if you look at countries like the United States or Britain that had a situation after the Second World War in that sort of post-war context where the, the housewife and mother was quite a central figure in terms of being the person who does a lot of the unpaid care work within the home or um, what in in feminism is also feminist theory is also called the work of social reproduction so reproducing labor power for the economy in the sense of not only reproduction in terms of family but also all of the housework and the cleaning and the cooking and all of the emotional labor that goes into maintaining relationships or the 
care work, all of these sorts of things. And that this was a kind of more or less stable regime of a, a housewife who was in the home and um, and then a sort of male worker who would go out and earn the the income would be the breadwinner in this in this model. Now, this was something that was that was dominant. It was in many ways always premised also on uh, racial divisions and also uh, colonial uh, context and so forth. But it was this kind of stable, uh, more or less kind of stable regime that starts to unravel for, for a variety of reasons that have to do with women's struggles, struggling a, against their, their position, um, but also then entry into, greater entry into the labor market, particularly of married women who then work more. We have over a period sort of from the late 70s into the 90s, uh, a huge increase in female labor market participation, meaning that women are not available in the same way as they had been in in the past, or a lot of the time they're sort of doing double and and, and treble shifts. But at the same time, what we also uh, see there is an increase in something that was already happening already, but an increase in in the ways in which sort of other women come in to to take over this role and and do this work and particularly in the context of more wealthier um, households who can afford to pay others we have other women who uh, work as domestic workers childminders and so forth and many of those uh, women also migrant workers women with a migration background and so here we see that there actually is not much change to the kind of gendered division of labor in society overall but there is a kind of offloading onto other women who then often are working under, are underpaid or in informal contexts, are precarious. So there's a kind of exploitation of a, of a structural, existing structural discrimination in the, in the labor market there. And the issue with, the, with this sort of idea of the chain is that these are women who have come from other countries and, of course, also have contexts at home where they might have caring responsibilities or are then leaving contexts where there's the question of what happens to the people who, who need to be cared for there. The other aspect of a kind of uh, chain is that it might be that then Again, other women from elsewhere might come in to, to fulfill that role. So in the European context, say someone moving from Poland to, to Germany, whereas there might be someone who comes from Ukraine to go then to Poland. You know, so there's a kind of knock-on effect. So what, for example, um, another sociologist, uh, Russell Perenius, has talked about a kind of international division of reproductive labor. We sort of have to take a broader lens than just the national context and look transnationally at this kind of division of labor happening there and the the inequalities that are generated. And to go even deeper into care extractivism, your book looks at the relations of power that play off profitability and care in against one another, exposing the devastating impact of financialization and austerity. And with that, you say that care needs to be shielded from the volatilities of financial markets, not be drawn deeper into them, end quote. What has the financialization of care looked like in practice for people who are not familiar? And what leads you to believe that there needs to be a decoupling of the care economy and the financial market? 
So financialization is a term that always sounds rather rather abstract, and quite basically, it means that we're we have been seeing a kind of expansion of this logic of the logics of financial markets to more and more areas, and also the sort of increasing importance of of things like shareholder value for for companies and and new ways in which parts of society uh, that before were not part of financial markets are are drawn more and more in, or for example, something like the expansion of of debt and people taking on more credit, this sort of thing. And in the context of care, something that we have seen uh, in the UK and also in other places, also in the US, is with the privatization of care things like care homes or also home care, there is a situation where not only are there kind of small providers that come in and run care homes for for profit, maybe not for very much profit, you know, as a small kind of business, but what has happened over time is that larger corporations have bought up these businesses and become sort of bigger chains orientated towards um, making profits. And with that also, uh, there has been a kind of expansion of things like private equity into the care market and into, into care homes. And one of the things that happens here is that private equity companies they have a, a sort of business models that are based on things like leveraged buyouts. So um, money will be borrowed, lots and lots of money be borrowed to buy companies. But then the company that's bought is sort of loaded up with that with that debt. And then the operating business has to generate enough enough income and profit to then pay back those debts and also interest payments. So that's kind of a way in which these companies become financialized. Or in the case of care homes, what sometimes happens is there's a separation between the real estate of the care home and the operating business where then the the operating business has to pay rents that increase over time to the private equity or the real estate managers who own the the real estate. And so there's been research here that looks at the ways in which actually wealth is kind of extracted here in the form, not just of sort of simple profits, but also financial wealth is extracted. There's been research done in, in the UK also on the ways in which sort of money kind of leaks out of the system in terms of what I mentioned already, things like interest payments and and payments of debt, but also um, management fees, consultant fees, um, these sorts of things. There's also a research been done on on issues like having sort of very complex company structures where money is moved around or also tax avoidance through a sort of existence of offshoring. So there's a whole kind of apparatus of wealth extraction is what I argue in the book. And I explain these things in in more detail in the book. And I argue that there's a kind of apparatus of wealth extraction that's been built around care that is taking much needed resources out of the care sector and making some people quite wealthy as a result. But um, but this is this is really detrimental to the sector. Another aspect of this is also that often then when um, companies are privatized and when they are sort of orientated towards the need to make profits, something like care is actually not very profitable. 
if you think about how caring is something that's actually as an activity, it's very time consuming, it's very labor intensive. It's very difficult to sort of, uh, you know, make care more profitable. There's only so many people that someone can care for in a particular amount of time. And, you know, there's not really much technology that you can, you can deploy in order to, to generate greater productivity. And so often what happens when there are these attempts at sort of making care profitable, either it becomes a sort of luxury market and people pay lots of money for their care, care services if they can afford it. But the other thing that often happens in this context of privatization is that in order to generate profits or also extract wealth, this happens off the back of the workers in the industry. Um, so off the back of the care workers who experience staff cuts or uh, cuts to their wages or worsening of working conditions and these sorts of things. And so my argument is that we need to think of different models here that are not orientated towards profiting and certainly not towards sort of financialization and that we need to think differently about how we provide care and, and what sorts of economic models we, we use here. Yeah. And I really want to stay on this for a little while because oftentimes when we think, when people talk about how care is undervalued in our dominant economy, which is true, the conclusion is that the work of care should be paid more. And that I agree with as well. But what I'm stuck on is how we expand the care economy if resource and labor extraction are what fuel the engine of economic growth and monetary wealth generation in this current system. So in other words, with the current profit incentives, it feels like to be able to value and pay more for care, we also simultaneously have to collectively extract and exploit more in order to be able to sustain care in that way. I don't know if this makes sense, but I wonder if this care economy you talk about really entails and invites us to think about what it means to revitalize other forms of value beyond the representational value of the monetary currency and really going beyond simply paying more for care. Mm, that's a really good question. And I think you, in the way that you, you formulated that question, you also capture some of the kind of uh, difficulties and, and complexities of the issue, because of course, it's the case that care workers, like we need more professional care workers, we need that people need to be paid better, they need to have better working conditions, better qualifications, better materials to do their job, so more resources have to go into the whole area of, of care and caring. And it's, in its different forms and the different contexts where it where it takes place. And also things like collective bargaining and, and trade unions, so that there's also a, an organized political voice and, and representation for care workers. So that that's one aspect. But as you say, if if it's simply orientated towards profit making, then um, then it seems like the, the solution is short-sighted. And there I'd say we have to sort of maybe take the lens out a little bit and and think more more broadly and first of all I would say we have to think in terms of this being not simply an issue of expanding marketization because I think that that's a dead end but but what we need to think about is more about the redistribution of of wealth so things like 
progressive taxation, greater corporation tax, curbing profit making, you know, maybe things like a wealth tax. So it's more thinking more holistically about how do we not only how do we generate wealth in society through our activities and through at the moment, at least uh, through through work, but also how is that wealth then distributed? And, And I think at the moment, we have a sort of situation, there's a kind of dominant idea that the way to, to, to do all this is just to create more markets and then things become productive. And, and that's a good thing. But actually, I think we, we need to think more about, well, actually, where where is the need for redistributing wealth in terms of also public infrastructures that are collectively maintained and paid for? So I think there we need a sort of rethink around public infrastructures and the distribution and redistribution of wealth. I mean, the, the, you know, the inequality that we have also at the moment is simply unacceptable and that some people are amassing huge amounts of wealth that, that far exceed anything that they, they could possibly need. Um, so it's really thinking also in this more structural, holistic terms. But the, the other thing, of course, is also thinking about the distribution of unpaid care work. Now, it's very necessary that we have more more professional uh, care workers and that they are well paid, but also we need more time to, to care for one another. And we need to also to think about how do we integrate care more into our our lives, our relationships, thinking also beyond the kind of you know, nuclear family and that sort of very privatized model often that functions off the back also of uh, the exploitation of women's labor. So how could things look differently there? What might a redistribution look like? And how could we also sort of shift away from a model in which we're always working more and more and more because we need more income to by the commodities and the, the commodified services that require us to work more and more and more in ways where actually that, you know, the, the products of our work are, are for the most part being privatized. So it's it's really thinking also about how the economy is organized and and how this might be done differently, how that also might be democratized, what are different models of service provision, uh, things like workers' cooperatives, also at the level of the sort of municipality, the very local level, could we we think of new and different different models there of how we might provide and, and organize care. So I think it really really requires this this bigger bigger shift in thinking and, and certainly a fundamental redistribution of wealth and and a, a different way of producing and and working and living together. Mm, there's so much to consider. And based on, of course, the market system, one of the fixes that has received a decent amount of investment is technological advancement in order to support the care system. I had raised similar concerns when speaking recently with Dr. Emma Bedore-Highland about the digitization of mental health care. But as you emphasize, technological developments throw up questions about the meaning of care. So what questions would you call on people to consider when technosolutionism is propped up as how we can grow the care economy and be able to provide care to more people? And what might we lose even through replacing care at a human-to-human level with more limiting modes of support from, say, automation and robotization? One of the things that, that has happened in the area of care and care work is that things like electronic monitoring of home care workers 
that clock in and and clock out when they are with someone in their in their home and and one of the the things that happens here is that there is a sort of more a stringent delineation of the time that a that a care worker is is spending doing quote unquote actual um, care which are already for the most time doing under duress and and with not enough time but what happens is say if they they don't have enough time to do what they need to do in the time available to them then they might have to clock out and and do this in their own time or the travel time doesn't get paid for because it's not considered to be actual care when you think well the definition really of a home carer is that they travel from home to home and care for people in their homes so um, that seems to be quite paradoxical in terms of what we would define as as home care that's one area so the ways in which technology is to sort of make it short shorter the ways in which technology is used actually to surveil workers and squeeze more more work out of them and and not pay for for parts of their their working day so to speak but another aspect is this sort of whole debate about robots and the use of technology in care and of course this sort of promise of the solution to the care crisis lying in technologies that we can use um, to care for one another whether this is in in professional caring but or whether this is also with regard to our older, you know, our elders and people who are older and might need assistance, but um, might be living on their own, or you know, we live further away from them if we're they, if they are our relatives, and then we can just sort of deploy these kinds of assistive technologies, sensors, and all sorts of things in their houses, and and that can then replace the need for you know for being closer and for for having a sort of human being help them out. And, and of course, the issue here is that that's not going to solve the problem that there are far too many people that are spending far too much time alone and isolated and disconnected, actually, from the, the social, affective community relations that they would need to, to be cared for well and to, and to flourish. That's, that's one aspect. But another is also the ways in which we have a kind of problem around what we consider care work to be. And a lot of the time, precisely because care work is considered to be very low skilled, it doesn't have much, much value. It's, you know, something that everybody can do or women do anyway. It's not seen also for the actually quite complex tasks and, and quite complex activity that it is requiring not just that somebody is supported with physical tasks, but it also requires emotional skill, intuitive skills, knowledge, the ability to relate to someone, to um, to take time with them, to also understand what their needs are. You know, there's a whole array of quite complex emotional uh, work in, involved there that um, often then sort of, again, gets vis- invisibilized in the ways in the in which we conceive of care as, as this thing that's just about supporting people with these uh, physical tasks that are, n- are not very complex. And I think some of the ways in which technology gets deployed or, or we think of technology is, is sort of on a par with that, that it, it syncs quite well with this idea of, of, of care being uh, not a very 
not a very complex activity. And and so I think there are there are really issues there about what is it that machines can do and and also what aspects of caring can they not do not not to mention the fact that precisely because caring is actually quite complex you might actually have a technology that could be useful with one aspect but not with others so you know you could have information communication technologies that are actually quite useful to help people to stay in touch with one another over distance but that doesn't replace the need for embodied physical contact in the in the same way it could be very helpful to have technologies that help with things like lifting someone but that doesn't replace the need for also the the human labors that are involved so i think here it's not about being anti-technology or pro-technology i think it's more about about thinking about the nuances of this and the ways in which the sort of dominant conceptions about what constitutes care work also sort of sit sometimes quite uncomfortably with these ideas of, of automation and you can just use technology to, to, do these, to do these things. On a related note, you share that it's also important to question the development of assistive technologies as geared towards freeing up the time of those who would otherwise be undertaking care to participate in the labor market. And I think this is critical because automation and digitization are often being pushed as the path forward as the way to improve our quality of life because supposedly they would be able to free up more time so people can work less. And it's not either or. I'm sure assistive technologies have supported certain types of work to be safer and less labor intensive and so forth. But again, it doesn't address why our system has become so energy and labor intensive in the first place. And it doesn't address how we've transformed the human experience through the extractive economy, which orients us towards endless productivity. I wonder what more you might have to add to this as it pertains to thinking about the idea of technologies freeing up more time to make people's lives easier and therefore making our system more caring. Yeah, good point. Because I think what the, the what I also stress in the in the book, and I was kind of guessing at it also just now with this point about you know people who are you know, older people who are living on their own, um, you know, having technologies to keep them company while everybody else is far away or busy busy working. This is precisely the point, right? If if technologies are being deployed simply to enable us to uh, be available for the for the labor market as opposed to be available to to care uh, for for one another then then that's problematic but but the issue is precisely that and I'm a sociologist right I wouldn't be a sociologist if I didn't say that no technology is developed in a in a in a vacuum it uh, it always depends on the the social and economic and political and cultural relations and class relations and issues of race and gender you know the sort of intersexual dimensions all of that is relevant to what kinds of technologies are, de- uh, are developed and how they're deployed and so if we don't address the kind of fundamental issues of an economy that is that is orientated towards profitability and is orientated towards putting people to work then we're going to end up with the kind of technologies that perpetuate that including you know the extractive dimensions in terms of the resource depletion and the 
ecological resource depletion. And so it's really about uh, thinking about that differently. And, and I think here also we come to this issue of productivity because a lot of the time also there is talk about the need to increase productivity and that's a good thing because it's it's sort of labor saving. But actually in the context of, of an economy orientated towards capital accumulation, what that means is actually putting people to work more and really we need to go into a, a, in a, a whole different direction. And I do think there could be technology technologies that help us, you know, that free up also our time. And I was saying before, also, there are technologies that could help with care, but but it really requires us to ask these much more fundamental questions about how the economy is organized and thinking about how that could be done differently that, that have to come before the, the technology rather than thinking that technologies and certainly the ones that exist at the moment could in and of themselves be the solution. Yeah, absolutely. And especially with the current current model or current economic system geared towards endless economic growth, with this increased perceived efficiency that might come with digitization and automation and so forth, I think what that overall does is it just accelerates extraction and the devastation of our planet and the exploitation of labor. So there's a, a lot to sit with there. And while everything we just discussed here points to the reality that there is no simple fix, especially when the care crisis really calls for deep transformations of our society and how we even conceptualize value. And so with this recognition, where does this leave us and how can we help to nurture the growth and reorientation of the care economy and yeah, any other cost to action you might have for us? Well, I think for one thing, we've already kind of addressed the issue of supporting the struggles of care workers and and being, I mean, I, th- I am sure people who, who listen to your program or work in care themselves, you know, it's not, a, it's not a sort of them over there. And many of us are care workers and are involved in these, in this work, but it's, it's about supporting those struggles and making the political demands for you know, investment in in public collective infrastructure, thinking about also this, the issue of care as one that that actually shows us the limits of an individualist idea about care and also shows us the limits of a system orientated towards markets. Because actually collective infrastructures of care are, are more effective. They're also more, you know, overall more efficient as well. So I think it's about... How do we build a collective public infrastructures of care through also a, a different model of production, but also a different distribution of wealth? So also calling for things like progressive taxation and, and investment here. That's one thing. But the other thing is also coming up with, with new new models where we're not pitted against one another. I think that's another aspect where often those who who are receiving care are pitted against those who are providing care because those receiving care think, oh, you know, what about the the, the cost of this? And I need to keep the cost of this low. And and so there's a kind of, you know, people are pitted against one another in that way. And so how do we overcome that through different kinds of models that you know, living and caring for one another in our communities more more collectively, redistributing their care work so it's not always the usual suspects who are, you know, for the most part women who, who do this work. So it's it's thinking across the whole spectrum of paid and unpaid care as a starting point for this, but really having an, a, 
an honest conversation of that we need to attribute more resources and value to care. But value is not simply a monetary a monetary issue, but but value can also be kind of different kinds of practices that also push back against exploitation, but also push back against the ways in which our, our lives are dominated by being productive for capital. There is a debt to be paid. There's a history that cannot be erased. Can I hold you? Can I hear you too? While we tear down the walls that cleft us in two. Why does my head hang What is an impactful book that you've read or publication that you follow? So actually, I wanted to mention here, I wanted to stay on the topic of care and mention the book by Gabriel Winant called The Next Shift, where he looks also in the context of the US about how um, the sort of rise of the, the healthcare sector in the Rust Belt, and here he looks at Pittsburgh. I thought that was very inspiring and really super interesting also in terms of the kinds of challenges that we face right now. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? So for me, it's staying grounded means movement. Um, I was thinking about this today, not just movement in the sense of social movements and being involved in, in social justice activism, but movement in terms of walking and, and dancing. Those are my practices of staying grounded. I love walking, um, but I also really love dancing and some movement is something that helps me to stay grounded. And what is your greatest source of inspiration right now? My greatest source of inspiration right now is actually that people are having these conversations and people are saying that things can't continue in in this way and I'm I'm always super inspired by the the students that I teach and the people around me who are who are asking all of these questions and 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 don't stop challenging the way that things are. Mm. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close, but you can learn more through Emma's book, The Care Crisis, which we will link to in our show notes. Emma, thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge and critical inquiries here with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I would say let's let's do it. Let's uh, create this this world in which care, it's not so much a case of care being everything, but that there wouldn't be much without care. So let's value care more. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To help us keep this show alive and reciprocate support for our work, you can head to greendreamer.com support. We also really appreciate the five-star reviews and whenever you get to share your favorite episodes with your friends. We also want to thank the support from and partnership with Calliopeia Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Debt by Luna Beck. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcripts are edited by Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>